Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secrets, and your Father who sees in secrets will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret." And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise Let us pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, again, as we look into your word, may you look into our souls. Father, may your spirit be alive and active in us and May he be dividing from our hearts from within ourselves. Father, may those things that are sinful and displeasing in your sight, oh Lord, may you make them aware to our hearts and our minds. Father, may you give us a heart that hates our sin and that desires to be as far removed from it as we possibly can. Father, may you not just leave us in a state of anger and hostility, but oh Lord, may you cause within our hearts a love for you to well up with such strength and power that we might seek to serve you, having been forgiven by you, having been restored by you, now having been trained by you to walk in your ways. So, Father, comfort our hearts, quicken our spirits, and prepare our own feet and bodies for the work that you may have for us this day. In your Son's holy and blessed name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <laughs> Well, it's not lost to me that tonight is the both Valentine's Day and also the start of Lent. I know it's been, uh, that irony has been in your lives as well, as I've seen some of your posts on Facebook and as we've had some conversations privately. We might think of Lent and love as two separate ideals, but oh friends, no, 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 they belong closely to one another. So we consider in this season in Lent, part of the purpose of this season is for us to consider our sin, our folly, and our shortcomings, and looking upon our own transgressions to develop true remorse and a heart of 
humility and penitence before our God. And in the midst of this season to then also turn to him and seek true forgiveness that we might walk purely and rightly in his ways. Certainly this opportunity is not only exclusive to this season but should be a part of the ongoing rhythms of the life of a believer. But this evening I'd like for us to consider a particular area of biblical teaching that I think is very near to all of our own hearts. It's certainly a criticism that's been levied against the church now for at least the last 50 years, if not more. And it's one that truly grieved and burdened Christ as he looked out upon the religious context and milieu in which he found himself living in the first century. I know we know who Christ is. He claimed to be in Christ. And we've wondered so many times, oh Lord, what do you love? What do you desire? What do you want? Have you ever asked yourself, oh Christ, what do you hate? See, if you look through the book of Matthew and if you look through the Gospels, Matthew in particular, you will see again and again an irritant, an ongoing irritant and frustration that pervades the ministry of Christ. Everywhere he goes, there are Pharisees, Pharisees, Pharisees. There are scribes and Sadducees. They're a part of the religious elite the self-appointed religious elite. And what bothers and irritates Christ about them is their hypocrisy. He cannot stand it. It drives him nuts. It shocks him when he's ministering in the north in Galilee. It irritates him when he's in Jerusalem. And his lament and message against them when such hostility there during the Passion Week is part of the contributing factor to his own crucifixion. You see, as much as Jesus hated the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, they hated him just as much, and even more. So much so that in their plotting and their mechanisms and their frustration, really throughout his, the duration of his ministry, they labeled Christ the Messiah as their enemy. Now, now, do you see the craziness of that? I mean, they are faithful Jews who love the Lord. They believe and affirm the full canonicity and authority of the Old Testament scriptures, the law, the prophets, and the writings. They believe in the resurrection of the dead. They desire for the teaching of God's word to be um, to resonate in the lives of the people in such a way that they are faithful to the teaching of God's word. And they, like all Jews in the first century, are longing and yearning for the coming of the Messiah. And here he is, literally, literally staring them right in their faces. And they hate him. They hate him because he calls them on their hypocrisy. They hate him because he draws attention to all the inconsistencies of their own life and work. And they hate him because he shames them in the public sphere. And there he is. They don't realize it, but he's the Messiah that they've been yearning for and longing for, for all of their lives. Friends, I want us to consider the subject of hypocrisy tonight because it is vital, it is essential in the areas of sin and in all the varying areas of sin that we wrestle with, that this particular one, we find mastery over. And I don't want you to be deceived, friends. Sin does not have to master us. Though it may be knocking at our door, 
though you may find the uh, immediate trappings of it creeping under the threshold of the floor of your own heart and reaching into your life, it does not have to reign there for you personally. And so also it does not have to reign there for us collectively as a church. So this evening I'd like us to consider the teaching of Christ regarding the Pharisees' hypocrisy. I want to ask ourselves some hard questions about the nature of our own hearts and sin. And then I want us to remember, even in the midst of the folly of our sin and transgressions, that God has lavished, lavished upon us gifts that rescue us from the trappings of sin, that pull us out of our hypocrisy, that give us a new heart and a new spirit and new longings to not be found in the displeasure of God, but to, be walk, to, but to walk to his pleasure and delight in such a way that we are no longer a hindrance and peril and burden upon the world, but that we then lead the world into the gospel of reconciliation and forgiveness of sins. So let's consider here, firstly, Christ's critique of the Pharisees. Let's then move and ask ourselves some hard questions. And then let's turn to the Lord for forgiveness of our sins. Some of you are aware of the nature of the Pharisees. I know many of you grew up in the church and the Pharisees aren't a new group to you. They were the most prominent religious sect in Judaism in the first century. They had arisen several centuries prior to the time of Christ. Josephus, a late contemporary of Christ, estimates that there were some 6,000 Pharisees who were in, living in uh, Judea in the middle part of the first century. And there are three of them that are particularly named in Scripture. We have Nicodemus, who came secretly to the Lord in John chapter 3. We have Gamaliel, the famous teacher of the Pharisees, who is mentioned particularly in Acts. And also, praise be to God, we have the Apostle Paul, who himself claimed himself to once be a Pharisee. If you think about our passage that we read previously, we see a whole host of instruction that Christ has been revealing in the Sermon on the Mount to his disciples. Some of you know about the Sermon on the Mount and about the beauty and the power of that passage. It's the longest sermon of Christ, longest body of Christ's teaching and preaching that we have in the New Testament. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, while he was preaching there in the Galilee, he had been lavishing his promises upon the people of God. But he'd been reminding them and teaching them of the Beatitudes, about these eight characteristics and qualities that belong to those who are truly blessed, that the poor in spirit, that, that they shall inherit the kingdom of God, that those who mourn shall be comforted, that the merciful will receive mercy, and that those who are persecuted, that theirs also will be the kingdom of heaven. See, Christ has been trying to saturate his people in um, the good things about what his kingdom has to offer. He reminds them also that they have been called to be light of the world, and that they have been called to be salt among the people of God. And as those of us who love barbecue, we know how beautiful and glorious salt can be. It can do wondrous things for meats. It preserves it. It brings out this most wondrous flavor and that's the teaching that Christ has been laying before his people, that you are the light of the world. You're illuminating the darkness and you're showing the world, giving them direction on where they're supposed to go, how they're supposed to live and what is good and right and true. 
but so also you're the salt of the earth. Oh, you're what makes it good. You're what makes it beautiful. You're what preserves it from my wrath. But Christ not only is giving the good news, he's also teaching and instructing his people in things that really bother and irritate him and the Father. And here in the midst of Matthew chapter 6, you see it in the midst of his teaching on giving to the needy, on prayer, on fasting, that there's this contrast that he's been setting up between his disciples and a group called the hypocrites. If you know Matthew, you know exactly who Jesus is talking about. He's been talking about those Pharisees because he calls them hypocrites throughout the passage. Hypocrite, 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 hypocrite. If you turn to Matthew 23, you don't need to, I'm not going to reference it too much, but you see Jesus giving these laments against the Pharisees and woe to the scribes and Pharisees, woe to the scribes and Pharisees. They are venom, they are vipers, they are evil. Well, if we try to pull together the teaching of the New Testament on what bothered Jesus about the Pharisees and their hypocrisy, he was bothered by them because they had a fundamentally deficient view of God's will. They believed that all of the external things that they were doing were what was really, really important that they prayed regularly, that they fasted regularly, that they kept the commandments, that they uh, practiced all of the regulations that were given in the Old Testament, that was where they placed the emphasis to be able to keep God's pleasure in their life. As a result of that emphasis, they had completely hollowed out the teaching of the scriptures. They had, in Christ's words, they had missed the weightier matters of the law, of righteousness, of justice, of faithfulness, of peace. They missed those things completely. So they had a fundamentally deficient view of God's will. They also really loved their status as righteous people. And you get that flavor and accusation in the verses we just read. They love to pray in the streets. They love to show their worldly, their righteous deeds. But see, the problem with that is that they're really worldly people. And they were using their faith and their religion as external verification today that they were important. See, there's a third area that bothered Jesus, and that was that they were completely missing their calling as shepherds, as leaders, as those spiritually mature among God's people. They had completely missed their calling. They were putting these undue expectations upon God's people that were burdening them down with all the additional laws that they were creating for people to follow. They were setting a false example of righteousness, that this is what really mattered to the Lord, and they were leading the people of God astray. And in their own lives, they were completely ignorant of God's own damnation and judgment upon them. And let's reflect a moment on some of the ways that we find some commonalities between the Pharisees and the temptations that we face among ourselves today. You know, questions I want to ask, ask ourselves do we really, truly know God's concerns? And are we wholly practicing God's will? You know, one of the things that I hear frequently as a pastor when reaching out to people, we're so busy, we're so busy, we're so busy. I've got all this stuff to do. I wonder if we see in our busyness that the busyness isn't the problem. The problem is the priority. You see, we're 
serving two masters. We're trying on the one hand to placate and live up to these false ideals that we have for ourselves about how our lives are supposed to look, about what we're supposed to do. And yet, in, a, and in, in the result of living toward that particular ideal, we completely miss our calling in Jesus Christ. There's a second thing along those lines. Like the Pharisees, I wonder, do we also inappropriately cherish our own status in the world? Not necessarily as Christians, maybe, but as middle-class people. Do we value our status as middle, upper middle-class people more than we do as Christians? And I wonder as we go about utilizing our time and the things that we do and the resources that we accumulate, we've got a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. And all this stuff that we have and all this clutter in our lives, is this healthy for a people who have been called to be salt and light in the world? You know, those of you who have boats, you know the great quote and saying, the two best days of a man's life are when he buys the boat and when he sells it. I mean, we can extrapolate that to all kinds of stuff. When we buy that second home, when we buy that other, when we go on that vacation, and you know, what we find out that we're doing, we spend so much of our time and our lives on all this stuff and all these external things that we're trying to do that when we actually come to a point of realization in our lives, how productive have we actually been in advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ in our own contexts? Have we just been wasting our lives in buying the bigger home, the next thing, the next car, going on the next vacation, etc., etc.? And in the midst of those pursuits, have we missed our calling to make disciples of Jesus Christ? Well, there's a third question that I have that goes along with this. Are we truly cognizant of the effect that we're having upon the church? See, one of the things about the Pharisees is that they were completely ignorant of the effect that they were having on the people of God. They thought everything was great and everything was fine and they were doing things that were pleasing in God's sight, but it took the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity to tell them that they were wrong. Friends, are we cognizant of the effect that we are having on the church? Some of you might say, well, I don't think I'm having any effect on the church. Maybe that's also part of the problem. See, this is the community that God has appointed to reveal the glory of his gospel in the world. Every other community that we're a part of every other commitment we have falls way down the list of priorities in terms of its eternal cosmic significance in redeeming the world. I know that we have a ton of frustrations and hostilities about the world. If we're going to see the world change, it's going to start with this community operating on all cylinders. And that's going to take each and every one of us Because we're not a congregation of eight cylinders. We're a congregation of 500. And in heaven's sight, my, this baby can roar. So let's think here 
not just about our shortcomings, but let us look at the promises that God has for us who were caught in the midst of hypocrisy. God never, ever, ever leaves the penitent, humble sinner alone. In fact, he calls out from his word and he lavishes his promises upon us. From 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Holy Spirit says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What's the first gift that God has given to us who were caught in hypocrisy? He's given us the gift of repentance. Do you know how easy it is to turn around and find restoration with God? All you have to do is ask. He's always there. He's never not looking away. He's always present to his people. If you find yourself crippled and paralyzed in sin, turn to him. Repent and believe. Earnestly seek his forgiveness for what you have done and how you have fallen short. And this is where you receive the second gift that God has. Not just the gift to turn away, but he actually extends his forgiveness to us. He doesn't look at us in the same hostility that Christ looked at those unrepentant Pharisees. You see, that's the key, unrepentant Pharisees. He looks at us and he willingly forgets our sin. Psalm 103 is such a great psalm. Listen to these promises. God, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. Friends, when you ask God for forgiveness, he extends it to you. But he doesn't just extend forgiveness to you and then leave you in an intermediate plane. No, 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 no. He starts to work to lavish and to build and to restore, to build you into a new creation. And I love getting lost on the internet on those restoration videos. I can't tell you how many axes I've seen restored into tomahawks, how many old vintage trucks that were covered in rust to be transformed into what looks like a brand new toy, or how many homes I've seen restored from ugly, disgusting shacks to beautiful mansions in glory. Friends, when God looks at you, that's what he's wanting to turn you into, a new creation, something beautiful, something glorious, and something that he takes such eternal pleasure in that he boasts of us in his own glory and will. See, what has God given to you? He lavishes his glory, his grace upon us, and he works with us to train us. He gives us a new heart that hates our sin. He begins to give us fellowship with him so that we can be comforted in our, in our own souls. He gives us the gift of his Holy Spirit 
animating us and allowing us to walk according to His grace and ways. He gives us direction through His Word. He gives us, in His providential grace, a community that can come around us and that can encourage us and bless us. He gives us the weekly rhythms of worship to remind us of His glory and splendor. And then He sends us out into the world and reminds us that we are not what we once were. You are not a sinner. You've been saved by grace. And when God looks upon you, He sees the beauty of His own Son. Now how dare you, how dare you walk with anything less than the very dignity of heaven. Because God loves you. And He's given His own Son for you. He's given your, His own Spirit to animate you. And He set you in a world that you might join Him on His work of kingdom restoration. And you know what you're going to find out there? You're going to find men and women who are just like you. But who God loves just as much as you. And it's going to be hard and awkward as you try to share the gospel with them. As you try to build relationships with them. As you expose your own shortcomings before them. Some of which they're going to tell you about. Because they're going to see the log in your eye while you look at the speck in theirs. But it's okay. Because God is with you. And Christ is for you. And you know what's going to happen? One day we're going to see those people at that baptismal fount. And their sins are going to be forgiven as the waters are applied to their own heads. We're going to cry when we see them partaking from this table. As they who were once strangers and enemies with God are now restored to him. And one day after you have left this life, oh friends, we are going to enter a state of such beauty and glory and grace where the sinful trappings of our life and the displeasure and all the anxieties and insecurities and impatience that we've had and experienced in this life are all gone away. And Christ himself wipes away every tear from our eyes. The very best thing that God has ever done for the world is given us his son. And we have his son. And through his son, we have forgiveness and sin, from sins. Friends, you might think that you're a hypocritical Pharisee. And you might be right. <laughs> At least sometimes. But the grace of the cross is for you as well. So repent, O sinner. Return to the Lord. And find peace that surpasses all understanding. Through communion with your maker. Who loved you. And has given you everything. Let us pray. Almighty God, we confess that we are not worthy of the treasures that you have given to us. But, oh Lord, you are our treasure. <laughs> you once weren't, once everything else in the world was. But, Father, as our treasure, Restore us to yourself. Remind us of your dignity and grace. And continue to equip us, O oh Lord, that we might serve effectively as ambassadors and agents of the kingdom of heaven, which came in the first century. It destroyed Rome, and it's been growing into a mountain that has filled the earth. So come, Lord Jesus, come and complete the kingdom that you have started. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.